following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Reading from God's Word this morning from Luke 1, we'll be continuing with the study I've begun in Luke right through December. You'll see that it's well-timed and coordinated to the time of the season. And we're picking up at verse 26 of chapter 1, having heard the annunciation through Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth was going to bear that child who would be the forerunner, the prophet called John, we have the very familiar text before us, and I ask you to listen with your, your mind and your spirit, because sometimes it's especially hard to hear things that are so familiar. Listen to God's own holy word, Luke 1, beginning at 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Our Father, use this word and its marvelous truth to establish us, to anchor us, to cause us to wonder and worship at what you have done in our world. May Jesus Christ be the center of our praise. Amen. A very early second-century theologian wrote to his theological brethren and pastors of the time these words, Beware, lest you turn the Virgin Mary into a goddess. Unfortunately, his warning was widely ignored in the early church and the church 
of the Middle Ages especially. Through the centuries, doctrines have grown up around Mary which have exaggerated her role and have falsely attached things to her that the Bible does not claim for her. It has been taught that after her marriage with Joseph, for example, that Mary supposedly never had intimate relations with her husband and never bore him any other children, even though the New Testament clearly speaks of the brothers of the Lord. In the 19th century, only about 150 years ago, it was decreed that Mary officially, according to the teaching of some in the church, was herself conceived and born, what is called the Immaculate Conception, that she was born without sin. And then much more recently, in my lifetime, in 1950, there was the declaration that came that Mary was received directly into heaven, that she didn't die like other people, but rather was received into heaven, bypassing death. Well, none of those things carry with them one thread of biblical evidence. And they are, unfortunately, attempts to elevate Mary into something the Bible does not portray her as being. But you can go all the way to the other end of the spectrum and find in the person of a fiery reformer, John Knox, the great reformer of Scotland, a man who was never at a loss for a strong opinion. And at one point, Knox, for his faith, was arrested along with other so-called heretics like himself, and he was chained on a galley, a French galley, and made to row at an oar for more than a year of his life he spent that way. And one day on that ship, a priest came on board with a statue in his hands of the Virgin Mary, which he took about, and he felt here was a special opportunity to somehow get these heretics, these Protestants, to line up the right way. And so he wanted them each to kiss the statue of Mary. Well, when they came to Knox at his oar, you might guess John Knox wasn't too happy about that idea. And Knox said to the priest, Sir, your idol is a curse to me. And he grabbed the statue and pitched it into the sea and said, There, let your great lady save herself. Let her learn to swim. Now, needless to say, John Knox did not win the Man of the Year Award from the Religious Tolerance Board that year. But between the rather extreme reactions, one in the direction that would elevate Mary way beyond anything the Scripture says of her, and the other who would reject her and almost uh, just want to see her put out entirely of the picture, you can see that Christians have struggled for 2,000 years to have any kind of a balanced and biblical understanding of this young woman who was the real historic mother of Jesus Christ. Now, we read here of an angel, Gabriel, the same angel who appeared to Zechariah to predict the, the birth of John the Baptist six months later, coming to predict in the little village of Nazareth, an out-of-the-way place. Nazareth isn't on any major trade route. It's a very 
small village in those times, just like some of the little crossroads places you might find in, in Lancaster County where there's no real town there at all, just a collection of some homes and maybe one business or something like that. One author, in commenting about Mary being from Nazareth, said, Mary was a nobody from a nothing place in the middle of nowhere. Now, we have to look at this and understand we're talking about a faith crisis of a girl who, if the patterns of the culture were true, was almost certainly a teenager. Girls were married very young, as young as 12 or 13 in that culture of that day. And many would say, while we don't know this with certainty, it's a, it's a decent speculation that Mary was probably not even old enough in our culture to be a high school graduate. And she not only was not a high school graduate, she probably was unschooled. She probably was illiterate. Think of that. God coming to a girl who couldn't even read or write, and yet one who had small expectations for her life, and yet a happy prospect in front of her. She was engaged to a tradesman with a good occupation. She had a limited and yet definite expectation that she was going to be a wife and hopefully a mother in this small village and do what her mother did and what the other women of the village did and live her life out there as uneventful life, raising children, tending to her husband and her home. Instead, God gave Mary a staggering, incredible task. And she undertook it with faith and real courage, not as a goddess, but also not really as a nobody. She undertook it as a humble sinner and a woman of faith who responded in ways that we can admire very much for how she sets a pattern for us to respond in faith to Jesus Christ. In the first place today, this announcement by the angel Gabriel of the conception and birth of the eternal Son of God to a bewildered young girl. She didn't object to it, you know. Uh, Zechariah made a little bit too much of an objection and was censured for it when he said, how can I be sure of this? It, it seemed like he was really challenging. Mary also said how, but, but hers was not, I don't think it can happen. It was I don't understand how it can happen. Mary, we see here, first of all, was a woman chosen by the grace of God. Luke 128 is a verse that is often tragically misunderstood. I believe the translation of the New International Version that I read is as reasonably accurate as it can be to the original language when it says, Greetings to you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Now, an older translation, which comes out of the Latin rather than out of the original language, Greek of the New Testament, is a flawed translation, and it's led to enormous problems. That's the translation that says, Hail, Mary, full of grace. And older English translations did have that. The meaning of that has become confused, more confused than Mary was confused at what was being announced, as people have taken from that the assumption that here is a woman somehow 
self-possessing grace that God discovered in her. As if the Lord God looked over all the women of the world and said, I've got to find somebody who's a vessel full of grace. Oh, there, in that young woman in Nazareth, I find the preparation. I find the qualification. No. That is turning the text upside down. Mary is being saluted here as a vessel graced by God, a recipient of God's grace, not someone who possessed it in and of herself. Quite the opposite. She was the object of God's divine election, and she wasn't elect of God because she was something special. Study that whole doctrine of election in the Scripture, and you'll find it's not God going and and finding the folks who look really good in comparison to everybody else. Rather, it's the Lord saying, I chose you because I chose you. And that's it. Because you're ordinary. In fact, 1 Corinthians one twenty-eight says, the Lord specifically designs to choose weak and common vessels to work in so that the glory of what is done will clearly be from Him. He chooses nobodies. He did it that way then, and He still does it that way so that his glory and praise might redound to himself. Mary was, after all, a young girl in a society that didn't even give that much place of honor to adult women. So she wasn't a man. She wasn't educated. She wasn't of the aristocracy. She didn't live in Jerusalem, the center of power. Just about every strike was against her. She was female. She was from an obscure place. She was the lowliest, really, in the social ladder. And God came and said, Greetings, vessel of my grace. God was going to shower grace on her. Ephesians 1.6 tells how the Lord does this in the life of every believer, where it speaks of the praise of God's glorious grace, which he lavished on us through the one whom he loves. Mary wasn't filled with grace in and of herself. She received the grace of God and went forward from that. The grace that counted in her life was that which God bestowed apart from any lack of of merit that she had any more than any other sinful vessel who receives Christ as Lord. She can't help us by giving us her grace but only by serving as a humble model for what the grace of God does in a life. She's to be honored and respected, but not elevated higher than any other believer in the world. People have tended to follow the kind of logic that says this or something like it. Well, they say since Jesus, of course, is so uniquely important as the Son of God, certainly his mother would have to be a second only in importance to him, right? She too must be way up there on the scale somewhere. I think of how this is portrayed in so many ways in works of art and other things. One of the great artists of all time, Michelangelo, you've probably seen pictures, if not maybe a few of you have even seen in person, the great statue he carved out of marvel called the Pieta. Mary, seated, in a chair. She's a mature woman. She's very straight. She sits there, and sprawled across her lap is the dead body of her son, Jesus. Helpless, broken. 
And it's quite clear that Michelangelo was communicating with his art. Art sends a message, of course, many kinds of messages. Michelangelo was making a statement. Look at the strength of the mother with her broken son. And it's the mother almost that you're ready to praise and honor if you look upon that art and take your doctrine from that. And then, of course, there are those who say to us, well, look, after all, God is the great creator God. He's holy. He's high. He's sovereign. He can't be approached. He dwells in light and so on. And Christ the Son, he also is great. Well, we can't approach the Father and the Son. What we need is, is someone who's a step, a big step closer to them than we are, but is kinder and gentler. How about Mary? And so the role is invented for her in the Middle Ages where actually the Latin term was applied to her, that she is the mediatrix, a female mediator. She's the go-between, you see? More friendly to go through her than through Christ, people would say. But oh, what a denial that is of the Scripture. First Timothy 2 says the one mediator between God and man is the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. You don't need another step before you get to Christ. Christ is the mediator. Now we think what an amazing thing it is, every mother certainly bearing a child who these days usually knows whether that child's going to be a boy or a girl, must have all kinds of dreams. Uh, maybe this will be a scientist, or maybe this will be a, a great lawyer or politician or leader in the church or something. And people hope that their child will excel and be people of character. Well, here was a mother who knew, not just hoped, she knew even from the moment of conception in her womb, that the child she would bear would be infinitely above herself. There wasn't any, any chance of this child turning out to sort of be a, you know, a black sheep who would go astray and end up coming to nothing. The announcement was that her biological son was going to be a person of unthinkable high standing the throne of his father David. You didn't go higher than that in Israel. That was a greater thing than uh, if an American mother today had somehow the firm prediction, your son, your daughter will be president of the United States. This is higher. Stupendous. He would be a colossal figure, the ruler not only in Israel but over the known universe, and he would reign not for four years or eight years or twelve years. He would reign eternally. How do you cope as a mother to be with the knowledge that your child would be all of that? Well, here was in Mary a vessel of God's grace chosen that he would pour it out through her. Secondly, we say that Mary was a workshop for God's great miracle. I took that word from Luther, who called Mary a workshop in which God operates. You probably know that for more than a hundred years now, since the fundamentalist modernist controversies of the early 20th century, the doctrine of the virgin birth has been one of those doctrines along with the authority of the Bible and a few other things that we use as kind of a litmus test almost 
to decide, is this person evangelical? Are they orthodox? Are they true in their faith? Or are they trying to jettison key doctrines? And certainly the virgin birth was one of those fundamentals that people ought not to go astray on. And and you could put a person to the test. Do you believe in the virgin birth? Is is it preached? And, And what many people found in American churches in the early 20th century was that not that their pastors stood up and denied it, but that they just never affirmed it. And by avoiding it, they didn't want to talk about it because they weren't so sure. Well, I've always been impressed by the two clear gospel statements of the virgin birth. We have both from Luke and especially Matthew. And consider the sources of those testimonies. Matthew, an accountant, a man of precise things. Accountants have to get things right. They have to get the details right or their, their whole careers come to nothing. Well, Matthew was a tax accountant, and he implicitly endorsed and believed in the virgin birth. So did Luke. Luke didn't make any great drum roll out of it. He didn't say, now I'm about to tell you the most stupendous thing you've ever heard of. He just stated this announcement to a virgin that the Holy Spirit was the operative power and that this child was from God. Luke did what for a living? He was a physician. He was a physician. He certainly knew how children came into the world. And yet he was willing to accept and not argue with it or defend it in any undue manner that it was exactly as God said. Now, either these gospels are reporting to us something historically true, or you have to say, if you're going to say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm just not okay on that virgin birth stuff. Well, what are you saying? Are these gospels lying? Are they deliberately presenting falsehoods? Plainly, they teach that it was the power of the Spirit of God interacting mysteriously with this woman's body to bring about in her womb this child that was a supernatural miracle and yet a historic fact. And then why should we say that that is too great a thing? For the God who made the universe... The God who spoke all things into being, who said, let there be light, and there was. You say, this is too hard. Too hard for God? That's why I think the text reminds us in verse 37, nothing is impossible with God. Way back in Genesis 3.15, it was predicted that Jesus would be the seed of the woman. And we could trace a, a line of other Old Testament text leading up to him that way. But Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 says, In him dwelt the fullness of the Godhead in a human body. Now that's either an impossible paradox or it's a truth. The fullness of the Godhead in a human body joined as one. That's the teaching of the Scripture. Hebrews 10.5 says, A body was prepared. For him, it's a miracle. If you're trying to figure this out anatomically or biologically, you're not going to. Give up the effort. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Great is the mystery of godliness, the mystery of it. You're not going to be able to diagram this. It's a work of God. And yet here it is, something we can witness and people's eyes can see 
the son of the highest, needing a human mother to nurse him and feed him. Yes, let's say it. We can say it reverently, I hope. Change his diaper. Jesus needed this. He was a little child who had to be carried around until his wobbly legs could let him walk. Mary, in this event, anchors the Son of the Most High in history and flesh. Is the virgin birth optional? I think not, my friends. You cannot cut this out of the gospel. It is the vehicle by which we know our Savior was a real man, but not merely a man. If you reject it, you reject Christianity. And finally this morning, my time is really short here, we must see Mary as a model of growing Christian faith. She, after all, was the first Christian, wasn't she? The first one to recognize the Son of God in the flesh and the first one to believe that he was what God said, that he would become the Savior. And so she did what a Christian disciple does. She heard God's Word, she rested her confidence on it, and she trusted in it. She accepted the unexplainable and submitted to it. That great line that she says here, let it be unto me according to your word. Now, she didn't always do it perfectly. That's why, again, she's not a goddess. Thirty years later at the wedding of Cana when Jesus was an adult, you remember his mother kind of acting the stage mother and saying, hey, son, I think you should do this to show everybody who you are. And Jesus had to put her in her place gently but firmly. Mother, that's for me to do, not for you. You see, her faith was trial and error like ours. She was learning. She was a disciple. Remember, too, she was one of the last of the disciples at the cross, representing us there, standing what that must have been for her, to stand there and see her son treated that way. Well, this morning I ask, will you look upon this model of a Christian, a humble model, an imperfect model, and yet a good model, and say in your life, in terms of whatever is challenging you, if you've got something that's up against the Word of God, are you able to say what Mary said, Lord, let it be done to me according to your Word? I'm not sure what's going on. I don't know how it's all going to work out, but I want to be yours. Without understanding, I will obey and I will trust when I hear what you have said. Join Mary in bowing your will before Jesus and, before, and to worship the one who we can truly say was Mary's son, but also Mary's Lord. Our Father, give us that profound but simple faith to hear your word, to trust Christ, and to believe you in what you say you will do. May you get the glory and praise. For Jesus' sake, amen.